Today's episode is sponsored by Femex, Radix, and RSK. You'll hear more about them later in the episode. Hey everyone, this is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law, and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts, and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. Today, I'm super pumped. I have Tor Bear here. He's the founder and I guess, is it CEO Tor? Theoretically. Okay. I say I say founder. Uh, we, we we're we're part of a very very large ecosystem with sure. secret, so it's it's way more accurate to say that uh, I have a concentration on the foundation, but to, I don't I don't treat it the same way that somebody else might treat a CEO position. All right. Well, we got Tor here. He's ready to talk about Secret Network um, and all the cool stuff they're working on on the privacy side of things. Uh, before we get started, I always like to remind my listeners that. This isn't any way sort of investment advice or legal advice. We're just having a conversation and do with it what you will. So without further ado, Tor, thanks for, thanks for being on the show. Appreciate it. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Sure, sure. So, you know, one thing I always do before we dive into the projects and what you're working on is I always like to get a, get a feel for sort of how you got into crypto. Um, so, you know, I know you, you were at MIT and then you did some sort of data scientist stuff. Just Maybe spend a few minutes walking us through your background. Let us know how you ended up in this crazy space. Yeah, it usually depends how far back we want to go. Um, but I'll, I'll at least go back to uh, undergrad back in the late 2000s. And I was, I think, 17 when I started playing online poker. Uh, like many people have gotten into this space, that's how they got their start. And I don't know, like, I can't speak for everybody else who, who had this start. But uh, even back then, I got the sense that uh, the global financial system was not as open and permissionless as I would like it. I got a bunch of my money frozen uh, mm -hmm. back in the poker boom days. And then there was Black Friday where they shut down pretty much everything in the U.S. all at once. It gave me a very healthy appreciation for the value of, of permissionless open financial systems. But I don't think my interest in Bitcoin, uh, first of all, there was no Bitcoin. Um, but then my interest in Bitcoin didn't really begin, I think, until a few years later in uh, around 2013. So I had been an options trader for about four years in Chicago. And when you're an options trader, you, you're a volatility junkie. You're looking for things that move. They tend to be interesting. Well, Bitcoin was moving, you know, it, it went and it, and it peaked at like $1,000, crashed back to like $200. It was the volatility that got my attention. And as you said, it, it wasn't until I got to MIT that the technology got my attention. Uh, and there's no question that the volatility wasn't going to be enough to keep me involved in cryptocurrency and blockchain technology, but the underlying power of that tech to create this open permissionless financial system to do things with data and smart contracts that wouldn't be possible uh, any other way. There was just so much unknown about the technology. Everything was green space. And I had worked in a lot of industries where it seemed like the whole goal was to set up a system that was going to be a closed loop, a walled garden. 
you find a way to turn the crank as hard as you can, crank as much money out of the system, whether you're cranking money out of the users uh, on like an advertising platform, or if you're a market maker, cranking money out of these options markets. But you don't want to actually innovate. What you want to do is extract value. And to me, blockchain technology was and still is probably some of the largest untapped value in the world. It felt like looking at a super deep ocean of possibility. And once I saw the quality of people that were getting involved in the space from the developers to the business people to the entrepreneurs, like it was really hard not to want to jump in and swim with them. So in mid 2017, I went full-time in the space, started working for Enigma. uh, And that took me here working on secret network with secret foundation uh, and extremely, extremely happy to have the privilege to do so. Awesome. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned the poker angle. I, you're right. I know a lot of people, I can think of like 10 people off the top of my head who have some sort of affiliation with poker or online poker that are now really entrenched in the crypto space. It must just be mm-hmm. that personal personality type. Maybe, but there's also one other element to it, which was I, I was an economics major, but I had a concentration in game theory. And game theory is really just the study of incentive design. Uh, and so much of what we see in the blockchain space, it's like a fractal at every level of the space that you, in, that you investigate, there is some model of incentive design, whether it's at the application layer with governance tokens, or whether it's at the protocol layer itself, or whether it's, it's in the markets, there's always some model of incentive design that is causing growth or is causing uh, recession in interest. Uh, it just really fascinates me because once you create this global permissionless system, it is so hard to model what's going to happen in these systems. How can you model the impact of a, of a flash loan in a composable decentralized finance ecosystem? You know, you only find out by deploying. Uh, so that, that I think is probably why you see a lot of poker players is like, they're all game theorists, but they're also applied game theorists. They just want to see this stuff working in the wild and they want to get their hands dirty with it. And, maybe they have a higher risk tolerance or a tolerance for total loss than others. And I, I do think that given the swings we've seen in this space, that just might be required. That might be the price of entry. Yeah. Now, crypto is such a cool space. It's hard to really put your finger on, but you're right. There's game theory. There's sort of a gambling aspect to it. There's geopolitics, there's economics, mm. there's monetary theory, there's you know, greed and sort of human behavior and incentives. I, I had a guest on a few weeks ago who has a background in like consumer behavior, um, like mm. studying how consumers buy and sell products and stuff. And he's applying that to crypto and NTF or NFTs and things. It's, yeah, it's a very interesting space and certainly attracts kind of a, an interesting character archetype. Yeah, I've met more interesting characters in the crypto space than I than I think anybody has any right to meet in a lifetime. But I but I like that part of it. I do. Sure. Yeah. So you said was it Enigma? Is that the name of the blockchain organization you got hooked up with in 2017? Yeah, so Enigma was founded at MIT while I was still there. Uh, so I was at MIT for grad school between 2014, and 2016, the two co-founders of Enigma, one was my classmate in the MBA program. Another was Guy Ziskind, who was a researcher at the media lab at the time. Uh, I took some classes at the MIT lab, the fir- uh, at the, at the media lab and they were the first blockchain courses offered at the university. So it was hard not to get hooked. I was definitely 
not the most technologically savvy person in that class, I'm pretty good. Uh, but when you're sitting there with a bunch of world-class MIT CS students and media lab researchers, you, you know, it, it, there's no shame in being one of the dumber people in the room. Sure. So I learned, I learned a lot from that course and Guy was one of the teachers of that course. Um, so when I had the opportunity later on, a, a couple of years later, to actually join full time and, and help push this vision of a uh, of, of bringing privacy to public blockchains, filling this massive gap in the technology that we thought was critical to global adoption, it it was an opportunity that I I knew I couldn't say no to. But I guess I had just been really looking for an opportunity to say yes to ever since I was studying the tech at MIT. It, it was a better it was a better option than the other thing I was looking into at the time, which was using blockchain technology for digital rights management for musicians. Mm. And uh, while that's still interesting, I think the problem there might not be solved for a couple more decades, not because of the technology, but because of musicians. Sure. Yeah. And the business model generally is, you know. Or lack thereof. <laughs> right. Yeah. The privacy thing's really interesting. So maybe, you know, I, I presume I have some listeners who might not be like super sophisticated in their understanding of typical blockchain technology. So can you just sort of walk us through what's the privacy problem on blockchain and like, what were you trying to solve for? Yeah, absolutely. So the privacy problem of, of blockchains is that every blockchain has the same privacy problem. Blockchains are not designed to be private. They're designed to be auditable. They're designed for verifiability and correctness. And in that regard, they're an extremely powerful technology, um, but they were not designed to protect data. Or, or keep it private. So when you're using an application that's built on Ethereum, for example, you might notice that all of your transactions are public, or you might notice that any of the data being consumed by the application is stored on the blockchain where it's viewable by anyone. And in that regard, blockchains are public by default. Ethereum is public by default. Even Bitcoin is, is public by default. It, it may be pseudonymous, right? Like you can't necessarily associate it back with an individual person and know that person, but everything is traced back to this address, right? So this is a problem with blockchains, even though it's a feature, but it's a problem because we're trying to get blockchains to do more. We're trying to leverage the power of decentralized technologies to create what a lot of people term as Web3 an evolution of the internet that's more user-centric, that allows users to maybe directly monetize their data or take control of their applications. And if that's the vision you're pushing for blockchain, then privacy is a problem. You just can't use blockchains as a privacy solution. Or if you ever hear anybody talking about how we should all use blockchains for voting, um, that's kind of a problem. <laughs> Putting votes on the blockchain when it's public to everyone is a problem. So when we looked at this problem, and when I say we, I mean like the entire ecosystem of secret network contributors, we look at this problem as an opportunity, which is what if we could introduce blockchains that could also give privacy to data, combining the programmability of platforms like Ethereum, but with the privacy of things like Zcash or Monero, where the data that you want to keep private and keep protected, you can and the data that you want to make transparent and make viewable to others, you also can. It's about giving choice to the users. If you start with privacy by default, then it's a lot easier and cheaper to make things public when you want. But if you start with public by default, it's extremely hard then to put that data back in the tube, right? To squeeze the toothpaste back in. It's already out. So we think that our model is 
and should have been the predominant model. It's just a lot harder to build for privacy by default than it is for public by default. But we're pretty firm believers that whatever gets built next in the blockchain space, it's going to be privacy by default first, then you'll be able to make public what you want. And that could underlie uh, a global financial system. What we have today probably can't. We require privacy for our global financial system to work at the, at the scale of trillions. Mm-hmm. De- DeFi is not getting there unless we have privacy by default and we introduce public when it's needed. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, you always, you sort of hear this a lot, at least I see it a lot on Twitter about how opt-in privacy doesn't work. And I mean, I think I think we've seen it to a certain extent with Zcash. I, you know, Zcash has done a lot of innovative things on the privacy side of things, but mm-hmm. because the transparent address seems to be the default. I think Zcash Network struggled with adoption on the shielded side just because, you know, folks are like, well, I'll just do it transparent. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because the the platform is positioned around the privacy message, but then you look at the statistics of the shielded versus unshielded transactions and you're right. So we can get into this as well, but it does go back to some of these other ideas around privacy, which is how can you have network effects for privacy? The whole point of privacy is that every additional user that wants to maintain privacy or gain from privacy by use of a product or platform. The idea is that the more users who are engaging with that platform, the more privacy is provided to everyone, the same way that there's sort of safety in crowds. But if you don't actually have platforms that provide network effects for privacy, if you have these siloed anonymity pools or, or just like you have a very fragmented, not interoperable uh, ecosystem of privacy-centric applications or currencies, then you actually never get to the scale required to provide adequate and cheap privacy protections for users. So another core thing to Secret Network and something we concentrated on from the very beginning was establishing network effects for privacy so that every additional user who engages with the network in some way is benefiting all of the other users who were already there, already trying to use you know, privacy by default applications. Um, and I think that that's probably the most powerful thing that we'll be able to do Um, because if we can do that right, then we can get to scale and privacy will be cheap enough, cheaper than ever before, but now also finally cheap enough to be a default for everything. Right now, privacy is so expensive, it can't be a default. We're trying to change that. Sure. And I I have a few more questions about that and maybe I'll get into those in a second. I'd just be curious to sort of hear your thoughts about, well, why is privacy something that we're interested in? Like, you know, you mentioned earlier that the fact that Bitcoin and these other networks like Ethereum are Mm -hmm. transparent allows a certain level of audibility. It allows transparency. What are the, what sort of the counterpoints to that? Why, why are you so passionate about privacy and why do you think privacy is important on a, a blockchain network like secret? Yeah. So privacy is not like a means in itself. It's what privacy enables. So privacy enables choice for users. It means you can choose what's public and what's not. You choose what data you want to be protected, what you don't want to share with whom, but then you get to choose whom you do share it with. And the whole reason we're called secret network is because of this definition of a secret. There's nothing inherently nefarious about a secret. A secret is just something that maybe you want to tell your best friend, but you don't want to tell your teacher. Uh, and I think that there's uh, something valuable to be said for like that connection between privacy and choice. It's, it's not about hiding everything from everyone all of the time. It's just having that freedom. 
so that's that's the value of of secret network and the technology as we envision it. It's not to say that Ethereum is invaluable because I don't want to I don't want you to see privacy as the opposite of openness. Ethereum's message of openness and open financial system for the world, an open world global computer, those are very valuable ideas and concepts. It, it's a very valuable platform. It's just not private. So I don't consider Ethereum to provide, as of today, enough choice to users and developers. But imagine if it could. Uh, that's, that's where we're trying to go. Sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, conceptually, I certainly agree with you. Like you just look at Ethereum and the fact that if you know one person's one transaction from one person is done from a wallet, you can view everything and all of their holdings. It just seems like sort of a perverse result, particularly now when you're building these complex financial instruments like lending and, you know, other right. DeFi products on top of them. You're like, well, hold on. Should, should anyone really be able to see, like, if I'm loaning out Ethereum, if I'm wrapping Bitcoin, like these things are, they're, they're not something you necessarily are like ashamed of, but at the same time, like, I'm not sure everyone ought to be able to see that whenever they want. No, I, I am sure that people should not be able to see that whenever they want. And it it reminds me of like the my what I would caution anybody developing for Ethereum who really likes that as a function of Ethereum. Let's let's not get confused and think that this is because it's the way that it works today, that it's a feature and not a bug. Because it, it really is a bug. If we wanted this to be a feature, like we would have to go and try to justify that like this is how we thought the actual global financial system should work. If we thought the whole global financial system should work like Ethereum, where you're effectively tweeting your bank account all day every time you make any kind of interaction, or as you said, if you know one thing about somebody, you know everything about somebody. Like if you really believe that's the way the global financial system should work, then you know, I, I would definitely challenge that. But I think most people don't think it should work that way. But we're tricking ourselves into thinking this was like an intentional choice with blockchains. It wasn't really an intentional choice so much as it was the only option where blockchains would still be usable. Mm -hmm. It was it, it was how blockchains always worked. It was very, very hard to get them to be private. We know mm -hmm. because we spent years trying to get privacy solutions to work with blockchains. But now that we have now it's our responsibility also to get that to scale and provide cheap, usable privacy to every user of the decentralized web. And if we can do that, then that's a that's a good thing. It's not challenging the vision of blockchains. It's expanding the vision of blockchains into something that I think can become an underpinning for a global financial system. Let's let's just not get confused and think that this what we have today is a feature. Yeah. No, I think I agree with you, Torin. I had a guest on Peter Van Velkenberg from Coin Center a few weeks <laughs> ago, and he, you know, he, he made the point that when the internet first launched and you'd go on Netscape and enter your credit card information, anyone could really see that. And it wasn't that everyone thought that, that was the best result. It was just like, well, you know, encryption technology hadn't gotten sophisticated enough to actually hide that data from third parties. And it almost seems like this is just sort of the same kind of progress that, you know, privacy isn't some dirty word. It's just really more like encrypting public networks to have a private feature when, you know, data being transmitted is sensitive and shouldn't be shared or you don't want to be shared. Mm -hmm. um, so one other, you know, one other thing I see a lot from folks in the community 
particularly on the Bitcoin and Ethereum side, are saying, okay, well, no, layer one networks, a network like Secret or Ethereum or Bitcoin, ought to be transparent. And then we'll just build layer two solutions on top of them that offer privacy. So, you know, it could be Lightning on Bitcoin. It could be some sort of layer two solution on Ethereum. Do you have any um, reaction to that as to sort of why you focused on a layer one solution instead of uh, looking at maybe a layer two solution? Yeah, I guess the way to think about what we've done with Secret Network is that, and I don't always like this layer one versus layer two distinction. It, it might be a technical distinction. We call ourselves layer one because we have our own independent consensus because Secret Network has its own native coin that's used for you know, staking governance fees on the network, et cetera. It, it's a deliberate choice to have our own consensus because what that means is we're not tied to any one particular blockchain in the world, whether it be Ethereum or Bitcoin or Cosmos Hub or Tezos or what have you, you know, we can now not only be a standalone ecosystem that's privacy by default, but we can provide privacy. I don't know how you want to think about it, whether it's privacy as a service, uh, but we can provide privacy to any public or private, I guess, blockchain ecosystem. And we have a number of technologies that we're exploring to do that, including, you know, secret bridges to other ecosystems or secret tokens that allow you to tokenize other digital or non-digital assets on secret network and have them be native privacy tokens. But it gives us a lot of that layer two functionality. It allows us to support all of these other rapidly expanding ecosystems. Like there's no question that, you know, Bitcoin is the dominant uh, blockchain. There's no question that Ethereum is the dominant, like decentralized financial platform where all these DeFi applications get built and scaled and adopted first. Um, we want to be able to support those ecosystems. And the best way to do that is to have our own independent ecosystem from those where there is privacy by default, and then be able to build things in such a way where we can also provide privacy to these other ecosystems. And then all of these other ecosystems, because they interoperate with Secret, they all gain somehow from the privacy network effects that exist on our platform. That's, that's really the vision. I, I don't know whether you end up calling that a layer one vision or a layer two vision. It's, it's kind of a weird distinction for me, but sure. there's no question that like the architecture that we've landed on is, is very considered and it's to preserve interoperability and it's to preserve that flexibility uh, as these other layer one platforms evolve over time. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, with all the like ability to wrap things and to have bridges and interoperability and atomic swaps, I suppose that the distinction between layer one and layer two is breaking down to some extent. Um, and as long as there's the ability for two chains to talk with each other, um, then you know that's almost its own solution that you wouldn't really fit cleanly into either bucket. It's just a way to bring privacy to other blockchains. So is that sort of the the vision with the bridge efforts you guys are working on is to be able to like wrap secret on say Ethereum or or Bitcoin and then be able to send coins back and forth? The vision of the bridge uh, I'll focus on the Ethereum bridge, for example. The big vision of the Ethereum bridge initially is to allow people to make a secret token version of Ethereum. So I'll start by clarifying what a secret token even is. Uh, because Secret Network is a layer one chain that has smart contracts and all the smart contracts are private by default on Secret Network. So they have encrypted inputs, encrypted outputs, encrypted state. That means you can issue tokens on Secret Networks just like you can issue ERC-20s 
on Ethereum, except those tokens on Secret Network are privacy tokens. Uh, so they act like programmable, like ERC-20s, but they're private, like a Zcash or a Monero, and you can create as many of these as you want as secret tokens. Uh, so you can create a system with a bridge by which, let's say you lock your Ethereum via smart contract, uh, and it will mint on secret a secret version of Ethereum. So we'll call it secret ETH. And now secret ETH is a privacy token on secret network. And you can do anything with secret ETH inside the secret ecosystem. Like you can lend it in a privacy preserving lending platform. You could use it with a privacy preserving AMM. Uh, and then when you're done with whatever you want to do with your secret ETH, all you have to do is burn the synthetic token and it unlocks ETH back on the main chain. Uh, so that is a way to have your ETH, right? And still be able to interact with DeFi, but instead of doing it in a way that constantly compromises your privacy, you're using ETH to engage with a privacy preserving decentralized finance ecosystem on secret. But because it's on secret, it also gives you exposure to anywhere else we've managed to build a bridge to, whether it's all of these different tender mint chains on Cosmos or it's Bitcoin itself. That's really the vision is a, a privacy centric uh, ecosystem built on top of secret that combines a lot of the liquidity and interest from every ecosystem. And we know what we're providing uh, as, an, as a benefit, right? Like we have a key differentiator and that key differentiator is not only the ability to like transact with privacy when you want and public when you want, but also to have applications that can be as complex as you want, right? Arbitrarily complex data privacy control for these applications. Uh, so like I say, these privacy preserving DEXs and privacy preserving lending platforms, that's, that's really what's exciting and what's really innovative. And who wouldn't want to be able to take their Ethereum or Atom or Bitcoin or whatever other asset in order to engage with those ecosystems? That, that would be tremendously exciting for me. Sure. So the goal then is to ultimately create this ecosystem where developers want to come and say, hey, this tech's really cool. Um, we can build our platform or our app or product, what have you, on secret. And then folks can get the sort of same network effects they might from other networks. But, oh, by the way, we have this really great privacy feature where users can sort of shield or hide their information if they want to. Is that sort of the goal? That's a big piece of the goal. I mean, you, you can either think about it like people can build solely in the secret ecosystem, or you could take a platform like Uniswap and just change some things so that Uniswap also supported secret tokens. So you can have the application layer that's just also utilizing secret network to power part of their platform. You don't need to like reinvent a user base, but we think that platforms that already exist would definitely benefit from being able to offer these opportunities to their users. Uh, and I think users, when they see how how much better the experience is when you do have these privacy-enabled applications, I I think that it it will it's all speculative until you prove it, right? But like we're starting to prove it with the launch of secret tokens on mainnet. The question is, how do the next few months play out? Are we going to prove out the hypothesis that there is actual demand for this? And we think that you know. To this point, there's never been a network, never been a platform to support this kind of functionality. Like no, no one has ever launched a, a blockchain with privacy preserving smart contracts until now. So we'll find out really what happens. But the, the interest we're already seeing from users and developers, I think is starting to give us a lot of confidence in the a hypothesis that we started with over three years ago. 
I've used a lot of exchanges over the years, and they all seem to have their problems. From a lack of volume to bad, buggy UI, or the exchange crashing when Bitcoin makes a big move. Until now, that is. Femex is a new derivatives and spot exchange launched last November by a group of former Morgan Stanley execs. Femex sports lightning fast transactions, the ability to handle many transactions at once so you don't need to worry about it crashing during big moves, deep order books, and real verified volume. They have several different trading pairs and leverage options. They also have low trading fees and a killer ref plan. Be sure to use this URL for my welcome bonus, Femex, P-H-E-M-E-X dot com slash A slash bully. Again, femex.com slash a slash bully. Check it out. Today's episode is sponsored by Radix. In the current financial system, transactions are slow, inefficient, and expensive. And even suppose that decentralized finance platforms, or DeFi for short, like Ethereum, were not designed to support the number and speed of transactions necessary to scale DeFi. Ethereum's solution for this is sharding, which results in scalability at the cost of composability. Radix is a new cutting-edge layer one platform for DeFi applications. Radix is specifically designed for DeFi, providing speed, security, and scalability. Radix uses its own next-generation consensus system called Cerberus, which has achieved over 1 million transactions per second in recent testing. Try doing that on Ethereum. Learn more at radixdlt.com. That's R-A-D-I-X-D-L-T.com. The DeFi revolution is the next big opportunity in the crypto financial market. RSK, the Bitcoin-based smart contract platform, is hosting exciting, secure, and rewarding apps that allow you to trade, lend, and borrow on the most robust smart contract platform, powered by more than 60% of Bitcoin's computational power. For the holders out there, why let your Bitcoin just sit there when it could be earning you money? Put your Bitcoin to work, trade without selling, Spend without selling, lend and borrow on the most trusted network in the world. Hop on to rsk.co slash open finance to be part of the future and start making money on your Bitcoin today. Again, rsk.co slash open finance. Yeah, so, so walk me through that. You mentioned um, Enigma and then um, it was, I believe, ENG, right? And then a, the there was a transition between Enigma and secret network. Was that, I mean, just talk me through sort of the evolution of those three years. I'm sure we could spend a whole podcast on this, but (laughs) I'm kind of curious just to hear like how, how that transition went and like when mainnet ultimately launched. Cause you, you guys launched pretty recently, right? Yeah. So secret network mainnet, the first secret network mainnet launched in February of this year, but secret contracts, privacy preserving smart contracts were in development for, uh, from that point, they were in development before that point, but also from that point until September of this year. And in mid September, finally they were proposed to mainnet and they launched on mainnet in, in mid September. So, uh, that was a really, really exciting moment because it was the culmination of a vision that did begin, you know, back at MIT all those years before with um, just with like white papers, right? Before Ethereum was, was really even a network. The very first white papers describing the idea of privacy preserving smart contracts um, were written about Bitcoin. Like a decentralized computation platform with guaranteed privacy was describing how you could do this with Bitcoin. There wasn't the option to do it with Ethereum yet. So things have obviously changed a lot with a vision for how to get to the point we are now. 
uh, over the past years because just the technologies that were available have shifted so dramatically in that time. So in that vein, for a lot of uh, the history of Enigma, Enigma, the development company, was trying to execute this vision of privacy preserving smart contracts. And uh, the original vision, I think that was maybe not the very first vision, but the one that was being pursued between late 2017 and late 2019 revolved around the idea of a layer two to Ethereum for private computation. So that was more like one of the visions that you're already describing, where we would have used Ethereum as a consensus layer and Enigma, this off-chain protocol, would have been a decentralized private computation layer. And there were some technical reasons why that wasn't evolving the way that we wanted it to. There, there were a few reasons why we were considering moving away from that technical direction at that time. There was also this vision of creating an independent blockchain uh, and that vision ultimately became secret network where it would be a layer one protocol where you would have, you know, native smart contracts and native coin and so on and so forth. Um, so Enigma, the development company is now supporting secret network as a core protocol development and some application development. But Enigma is now part of a very, very large ecosystem in the secret network ecosystem. When, when it was just the Enigma protocol, you know, back in 2017 through 2019, and it was very Enigma centric, uh, th that's really what it was. It, it, it was. it wasn't a very broad effort. We had a big community, but it was, it was very Enigma centric. Secret Network is different. Secret Network has now, I believe, 45 active mainnet validators. We launched with 20, we're up to 45. Um, and that's with the mainnet upgrade and everything else happening. So the hardware requirements, all the requirements have gone way up uh, and the network has expanded rapidly. It's some of the best validators in the world, whether they support many, many other chains, like we talk about Staked or Figment or, or Dokia Capital or Chorus One or Bee Harvest or, or any ones of dozens of others. Um, but there's also some validators that are very specific to the secret network ecosystem and also build applications and also build tooling. So this is like secretnodes.org, chain of secrets, secure secrets. Um, there's specific companies that now exist just to serve the secret network ecosystem. So it's gone from just being Enigma as Enigma to we've got dozens of development companies and, and thousands of people around the world directly contributing to the network. I think that makes it very exciting, a lot more sustainable. And as a layer one protocol, that's the kind of community adoption and support you need to make it. Uh, and, and I think it's going to be our biggest strength as we move into 2021 and beyond. It just gives you so much more power to expand when you know that it doesn't revolve around the efforts of one particular team or, or organization. Gotcha. So you're saying there's like multiple companies and validators and um, players, so to speak, involved in the development and governance of Secret now? Mm -hmm. So it's on-chain governance. Uh, all of the validate it's a delegated proof of stake protocol. So all the validators can uh, submit proposals, vote on proposals. Anybody can submit a vote, create a proposal. Uh, we also have a bunch of community committees. I think we're up to eight community committees uh, for things like uh, development or educational materials or awareness initiatives or infrastructure best practices. Uh, we even open sourced our website. So there's a committee to redesign and host the website. Uh, that's been going on for the last few weeks and it's super exciting. So, so much of the protocol is now just in the hands of the community and it, it's very much out of the hands of a single organization. Um, to that end though, I, I left Enigma in June of this year to start an independent organization called Secret Foundation 
and Secret Foundation is yet another player, as you're saying, in this ecosystem. Our sole responsibility is just to look at this ecosystem, look at all the people participating and think, how do we help all these people? How do we help them work together better? How do we get them more resources? How do we effectively collaborate and coordinate so that the ecosystem grows faster? So we bring these privacy solutions to more users globally. Uh, so it's good. We have organizations like the foundation that are explicitly focused on, you know, growth and community engagement, adoption, awareness, um, at the same time that you have all these incredibly brilliant developers uh, who are contributing their knowledge, contributing their code to a very rapidly expanding ecosystem. It's uh, every, everybody's doing what they do best. If you let me code the protocol, it probably wouldn't go very well. So I'm glad, I'm glad that somebody else is doing it because I think, I think Secret Network is supported by some of the best developers in the world, period. Sure, great. How, um, how would you become a validator? You said it was a delegated proof of stake network. Does that mean you have to hold a certain number of secret to participate as a validator? Sort of how do the mechanics of staking and things like that work? That's a great question. So there's a maximum of 50 nodes that can be active in the network at any one time. So anybody can run their own node. Uh, it, you only need to stake it with like a single secret, like one SCRT coin. Uh, but anybody can also delegate to a node. And the top 50 nodes by the number of coins that are delegated to that node are considered the active set of validators in the network. So while we have less than 50 nodes, anybody can start their own node for as little as one secret. Um, and then you can go around and try to recruit community members to delegate their coins to you because you operate very compliant infrastructure. You have high uptime, like your node never goes down. So the community members want to support the nodes that are constantly online, supporting the network, performing the computations, uh, keeping keeping the network stable, keeping the network secure. Uh, it's it is again going back to game theory and incentive design. Uh, it's a great system for ensuring that we constantly have uh, the best nodes supporting the network. Because if nodes go down, uh, they're removed from the active set. People can undelegate. You can delegate to new nodes, and new nodes can enter the ecosystem to provide. Uh, computational services to the protocol. They go in, they go out. Uh, and then you're also participating in on-chain governance. So as a delegator, you can vote, but also you're delegating your vote to whichever validator you're choosing to stake with. So that validator is effectively voting for you, like it's a representative democracy on very critical governance initiatives, like setting the inflation rate in the network or funding community spend proposals. It, it gets very complicated uh, so the one thing I want to stress is it's a very good system for delegators. Right now, I think um, the ROI for a delegator on an annualized basis is something around 30% just for staking uh, with a node and, and participating in governance, which is very attractive relative to other proof of stake networks. Um, but also because there's direct governance with the chain, like this is not only a staking coin, it's a governance coin and it's used for computational and transactional fees. So there's a lot of utility for secret, the coin itself. And there has been since it was launched. So you can, you can get involved right away with a single secret as a, as a delegator, as a validator, or just as a community member who, who wants to participate in governance features on chain. Like I, I think that that is just such a compelling compelling thing to have for your protocol versus, you know, you show up, it's more like you're a, you're a cheerleader on the sideline, just waiting for somebody to build the thing that, that, that doesn't sound terribly engaging. Lots of people don't mind that. 
but it doesn't sound very engaging to me to just wait for somebody else to make the magic happen. Sure. Yeah, no, and you see that a lot. Like, you know, you'll be in these Telegram channels and people will be like, what's the update? And I guess oh, to your yeah. point, it's like, well, no, it's a decentralized network. Like, if you want updates, go build them. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, at the same time, you know, we don't want to say like, you know, this is all up to just you individually. Like, we don't have a very individualist culture as a network. It's very much collaborative. So at the same time as we're saying, like, you want to get something done, go build it. We're also saying, here's the 10 people you can go build it with. That's why we have these community committees. It's like, you want to build something? Go join the development committee. Here's 20 developers sitting around talking about use cases, waiting for collaborators, trying to organize hackathons. You have to not only provide a path to participation, but also a path to collaboration. That, that's kind of the, that, that's the key to, to growth versus just you know, ending up as a sort of libertarian clusterfuck <laughs> right yeah no it is it is interesting to sort of um i guess hone incentives like this i mean these are all new kind of concepts i i deal a lot with sort of corporate governance as a corporate attorney um and you know like there's the delaware code that has these sort of processes laid out but it's really fascinating to watch sort of in real time you guys and other networks sort of build out these governance and operational processes in real time to encourage network growth um, and and adoption. I I actually, I downloaded, what was it, Kepler? Um, is that <laughs> you guys' online wallet you use? It's sort of like the MetaMask of secret? It's my favorite wallet. I can't say that they are like secrets wallet, but what I will say is they were, they were funded by the community, by an on-chain proposal. They made a proposal, the Kepler team, which is a great team led by uh, Josh at Chainapsis. They made an on-chain proposal to say, give us some secret. We will build all of this functionality to support secret in our web wallet, to add support for secret tokens so you can create secret tokens and send them just from your browser. Uh, the community was super excited about this because key to adoption is making it easy for the end user. Like MetaMask is easy for the end user relative to like command line or any of these like DeFi applications that are just so opaque right mm -hmm. so we were super excited to work with the kepler team they, they support a number of projects in the cosmos ecosystem but because they also support secret network it also helps with our mission of interoperability because now via kepler uh it's going to be a lot easier for secret network to start uh adding privacy support we hope for other cosmos networks as well and i'm sure kepler as a team because their wallet works so well i'm sure they've got designs even beyond the cosmos ecosystem so yeah it, the more teams like that who come into the secret network ecosystem who not only share a passion for privacy and a passion for secret in particular but also that passion for interoperability and global support of all blockchain ecosystems we'll, we'll take as many people like that as we can that's so in line with our ethos and vision for sure so maybe one thing i missed or one thing i'd like you to explain is how does the actual privacy aspect of this work how how is the data shielded i know there's like zk snarks monero uses sort of not mixing but uh, jumbo i forget the word they use but what what's sort of the the process the technical process in which the data is not viewable um pursuant to this smart contract transaction yeah when when you hear about something like this, like privacy preserving smart contracts, it, it is always good to assume that it's, you know, black magic. 
that that's something something is clearly happening here that that sounds impossible right how can you be using encrypted data in an application how can you be like protecting data in use it's been sort of a cryptographic holy grail for decades even before bitcoin mm -hmm. you know but like going back to the 80s and 90s and the, so there was there've been uh explorations of a number of different privacy preserving methods some of them are like strict cryptography based they're software based privacy solutions so these include things like multi-party computation uh, fully homomorphic encryption and, and all the, this whole design space of ZK stuff so it's which is zero knowledge stuff um, if, if you're less familiar so a lot of that has been explored a lot of it has been implemented some of these solutions are mostly theoretical still there's again like this uh, academic pursuit of perfection when it comes to these privacy technologies. And the way that I always describe it to people is that there's an efficient frontier between the performance and the usability of these technologies in production and the security of these, uh, of these privacy methodologies. Nothing has perfect security, nothing in the world. And if anybody tells you it does, you should literally use anything else but whatever they're trying to sell you. So because there's always a trade-off between usability, performance, and security, you just have to be knowledgeable of those trade-offs. For us, we know that what it takes to get global adoption more than anything else is usability. It needs to be usable by developers, it needs to be usable by end users, and it needs to work better in production than anything else. So where we've chosen to concentrate our development efforts for Secret Network right now is in the space of secure hardware enabled privacy. And in our network, what that means is that every node in our network, in this network of secret nodes, right, all of these validators, all of these nodes need to be running with secure hardware, with secure enclaves enabled. And all of the computations effectively are happening inside of this enclave, which is a special area inside of the node, a black box really, that cannot be accessed from outside. So even the nodes in the network effectively cannot access the raw data being used in the computation. And the entire blockchain effectively is running inside of these enclaves on our network. So that that's really the technology that's being used far and away, like compared to some of these more theoretical applications like SMPC or FHE. These are more usable today in production. The performance gains are dramatic, so they're cheap to use. Other solutions end up being extremely expensive, whether you're talking about uh, you know, gas. So this is where we've chosen to focus our development efforts, but we're continuing as an ecosystem to look at research efforts on all of these other implementations of privacy if they can be used alongside, like ZK rollups, alongside some of these secure hardware solutions, then you know we will adopt whatever uh, whatever solutions we can into our roadmap. Ultimately, the goal is to provide choice to developers which privacy applications they want to utilize with Secret Network, and provide choice therefore to users. Uh, and we'll do that in whatever way there seems to be clear demand for. And right now, the demand just seems to be for something that works in production. And we're very proud to have the very first privacy-preserving smart contracts in production. Uh, we're still perfecting them, but we know that they work better than anything that's that's been created and shipped to date. Are you able to, do you have any sort of visibility into the data about um, the number of transactions occurring on the secret network? Or have you seen any data like that? Or is that all, I guess, secret? Um, or is it possible <laughs> to see it? 
It is possible to see it. So the distinction that's important here is that Secret itself, SCRT, the native coin in the network, is not a privacy coin. So when you hear about privacy coins being delisted from exchanges or governments cracking down on privacy coins, they're not talking about secret. Secret is not a privacy coin. You can see every secret transaction that occurs. If it gets sent from one address to another, so on and so forth. Secret is just the native coin of the blockchain. You can see how much secret is staked. You can see how much secret is, is sent. You can see what it's used for in governance. But you can create secret tokens, as I said, like on top of the platform. So imagine like you're looking at Ethereum. Imagine if all ETH was still public. But what you use your ETH for, like in terms of gas, like if you looked at all the ERC-20s on the platform, let's say all the ERC-20s were private. That's mm. closer to the mental model you should use for secret. So I can go to a block explorer right now and tell you how many transactions happened in the last 24 hours. I can tell you how many, um, I can tell you how many interactions there were with a particular secret contract. Um, but what I can't tell you is what was that interaction? What did they do to this secret contract when they interacted with it? Unless you have the viewing key, unless you're the person who interacted with that contract, you can't say what actually occurred. But when it comes to secret itself, the native coin, you can. That's the balance, as I said, like privacy and transparency, these aren't opposites. They're really just one side, two sides of one coin in our network. Uh, and, and the relationship between secret, the coin, and privacy coins is again, that balance between transparency of the native coin, but the privacy for the things that occur on the actual platform itself. It's, hmm. it's a tough thing to wrap your head around originally, but when you see it working in practice, you realize like this is the way that it should have been designed all along. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, and I'm sort of wrapping my head around it in real time <laughs> because I didn't realize that was the way it worked. Um, is, is that sort of the the primary thesis then on the, the compliance side of things? And I don't want to, you know, I don't want you to ask I don't want you to say anything that might be privileged or confidential, but is that sort of the idea when it comes to complying with FinCEN and these other um, like FATF and, and these global rules about um, money transmission and things, are you saying, well, no, the secret coins are public, but the transactions occurring on the smart contracting platform are private. So then we're in compliance. Is that sort of the idea? I wouldn't say it's like a strategic plan to comply with regulation. We just think that this is actually how a lot of the financial system kind of already works, which is if you are the person interacting with the system, you can always prove something about your interactions with the system. Like you have, that's the idea of viewing keys on our platform, which I think need to be probably better explained even in our own documentation. The idea that you can prove, you can make public what you wish to make public about your own behavior, but you cannot force somebody else to make something public about their own behavior, you know, just from interacting with the blockchain. When you layer all of the regulation on top of that, right? If a government says you must share with us your viewing key, you know, I, I'm not a regulator. I'm, I'm not going to speculate as to how that actually plays out. Um, all I can say is that when it comes to SCRT itself, it isn't a privacy coin. It isn't a concern. Uh, and, and anybody who needs to be convinced of that needs only open the block explorer and witness literally everything that happens with secret on our platform. You can see every secret that moves to an exchange in and out of, in and out of a validator. It, it's all public. And 
again, like I, I have to position secret as a privacy protocol because that's what differentiates our technology from other platforms. But we're not saying that privacy in itself is the end good. The end good is the freedom and choice that it permits users, the protection that it provides users, and the massive usability gains that you get as an application developer or user in, in the DAP space from being able to have what we call programmable privacy, just privacy for what you want, public for what you don't want to be private. It's, it's all there for you to choose. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes sense. I think, you know, on the sort of flip side of that coin too, on the regulatory aspect, I think it was Coin Center who mentioned in a, in a legal opinion to the OCC saying, well, maybe um, public blockchains may have a hard time complying with the Bank Secrecy Act because there's obligations on banks and other financial services to protect their user data. And, you know, if they're sending Precisely. user data over unencrypted networks or transparent networks, that could be a problem on sort of the other side. So, you know, there's, yep. there's a tension there between privacy and transparency that I think you're alluding to. That's really interesting. And sort of, we're all figuring it out together as we kind of develop all this cool new tech. Yeah, regulators are figuring it out too. And I'm very mm -hmm. grateful for the efforts of organizations like Coin Center who do a lot to educate not only consumers, but regulators around like, here's what the technology does and doesn't do. Here's where the threats are and aren't. Here's where the opportunities are and aren't. Like we're not a lobbying organization at the foundation. All we do is try to help steward community governance, get the right things built. Uh, you know, when we have organizations out there like Coin Center that are doing that kind of work, on the ground to, to just ensure that people at least understand what the truth is about these technologies and the truth is about these regulations. It helps build those bridges between, you know, re regulators are not evil people. They just don't necessarily know the benefits and the weaknesses and the threats of these technologies. And when they come to understand, I think the value of the privacy protections of secret network and how that, again, it comes down to protecting consumers and giving consumers choice I think that they're going to land on the same side that we already have, which is that this is a public good ultimately. And there isn't another way to do it. Everything public by default, like these are the same regulators that are murdering Facebook for that. Like just having no protections for user data. You, you can't, you can't really try. <laughs> I, I don't see how you would reach any other conclusion about blockchains than to say like public by default is the wrong model. So what else I, I, I know well, you guys are working on a lot of different things, obviously. And I, I checked your blog and you have a ton of cool stuff that I, I'd love to hear about. I, I saw like the secret NFTs and mm -hmm. um, secret bids. So like sort of a Uniswap type thing on the secret network. I mean, we probably, we can go however long you want, but you know, I, I'd be curious to hear <laughs> what, what it is you find most interesting that is being developed and like what you guys, what you want to talk about. Yeah, so let's let's start by saying you can build literally any multitude of things on Secret Network. It's so it's exciting. The same it's the same promising design space of Ethereum, but with an added degree of flexibility because you've got you, you had this evolution. Bitcoin was you know decentralized value transfer, then Ethereum gave you decentralized programmable value transfer, and now Secret Network is also giving you 
uh, decentralized programmable value transfer that also has programmable privacy controls for how value is transferred and, and for any computation that's happening on the platform. So the design space is massive. Where I'm most excited is tokens, the idea that you can tokenize on, on our protocol. So there's this whole design space around you know, fungible tokens, right? Which are like ERC-20s. You, you can just issue them. They can represent, uh, like on Secret Network, we talked about representing Ethereum as a secret token and, you know, wrapping uh, synthetics uh, from other platforms on Secret Network. But then you've got the idea of non-fungible tokens. Uh, and those can represent, I did a whole podcast about this with Jake Bruckman, and we talked about how NFTs can represent experiences and unlock experiences. Well, for experiences, you probably want a great degree of data to be kept private and known only to the individual who had the experience or wants to have the experience. They become like real world cookies. I, I think that was his words that he used to describe it. And it really stuck with me because when I thought about that real world cookies and this NFT idea, it definitely seemed to me that you needed to have privacy by default. But then there's also a design space around non-transferable tokens. And this is where like you can give somebody a secret token that can't be transferred. It's something that's, that only you can have. So you can always prove something about yourself and you can prove that it wasn't, you know, it was never transferred to you. It was only issued to you. So this could represent some sort of badging or reputation system. And again, with privacy. So when you need to prove something about your own reputation, you can. Otherwise, uh, it stays only known to you. And then... The, now you can expand from that and say, okay, what if you do have a privacy preserving Uniswap built on secret network that allows you to exchange transferable tokens, whether they're NFTs or, or fungible tokens. Now you have, but those platforms themselves, they're not only allowing you to trade those assets, they're allowing you to trade those assets with privacy. So if you're a liquidity provider, nobody can see how much liquidity you've provided to the pool. Nobody can see your orders in the order book and know that those are your orders. It solves the front running problem that's everywhere on Uniswap. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, I get excited about literally everything that gets built on the network. I know we could do this for another 10 hours and I, and I probably wouldn't get sick of talking. I might fall asleep just cause I'd run out of steam, but I wouldn't, it wouldn't be because I was bored and it sure. wouldn't be because I ran out of things to suggest. I think it would just be sheer exhaustion. And then finally we would reach the end of, uh, of everything that I'm excited about that's coming out of the secret ecosystem, but definitely so, this idea of tokenization. So where can people find out more? Uh, the best place to go to find out about Secret Network, uh, three places. One is our website, scrt.network, so secret without the E's. Also the ticker symbol of, of secret, the actual coin, so it's scrt.network. You can also read our blog, which is blog.scrt.network. Uh, we publish probably two articles a week at least covering development from around the ecosystem. Uh, really exciting stuff's coming out there all the time. Last place is definitely Twitter at secret network that's the full word so secret network no scrt in that one there I, I i we'll tweet everything we do from the blog we'll retweet all the things that as i said the dozens of network contributors are doing from the validators to the developers to our partners um those are the best places to keep up with everything that's happening but if you are a hands-on kind of person and you want to lean into our community join our discord that's kind of the home of everything that's at chat.scrt.network you can join our forum at forum.scrt.network. Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Torbear. There's a, there's a ton of places. And as you can probably tell, I'm very happy to connect with anybody and, and talk uh, to no end about uh, the value of all this technology. So please do. 
Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. And then, uh, so my final question is, you know, this summer we were sort of looking at the DeFi revolution and everyone was like, oh, Bitcoin's done, it's toast. And now Bitcoin's ripping everyone's faces off and alts are kind of getting <laughs> beat up. Do you think like we're going to see a different trend eventually? Or where do you think we're sort of headed over the next year or two? Yeah, DeFi is not dead. Right. Decentralized finance is, is just a concept that says we want our financial system to be more open, more permissionless, more participation. That is an unstoppable global trend. And Bitcoin going to God knows what number is a reaffirmation of that trend because Bitcoin does represent that global open financial system relative to the alternative. But that doesn't mean it's going to stop there. It doesn't mean innovation is going to stop there. I think, and this won't surprise you or anybody listening, the next narrative around this decentralized financial system is going to have to revolve around what role is privacy going to play in all of this? We had a massive DeFi revolution happen over the summer, and it occurred with virtually zero privacy protections for users. But now the institutions are coming. The institutions are holding Bitcoin. The institutions are exploring Ethereum. If they start getting their hands on this DeFi ecosystem and realize that they won't have privacy for anything they do in these systems, they won't interact with it. But when they realize that there's opportunities with Secret Network and in other places in the public blockchain ecosystem where they can interact with this open global financial system and still be able to protect their own data uh, and have that sense of security, that's going to be the biggest catalyst for growth because that's capital that needs to come into this digital economy. That's an expertise that needs to come into this digital economy that's blocked by the idea that they would never have had up to this point privacy for however they wanted to interact with it. And if secret network, if ultimately we say, you know, it's not that secret network gave us the most privacy or anything like that, but if we say secret network unlocked the next trillion dollars of growth in DeFi, from its usability advantages and from the protections that it provided for users and institutions, then I think we'll have accomplished our mission, at least the way that we see it. Nothing, nothing matters without that kind of global growth and adoption. And I've never been more optimistic, especially with Bitcoin doing what it's doing, never been more optimistic that we're going to achieve it. I'm totally with you. I, I think it's interesting to see Bitcoin become at least in the main conversation about being a digital store of value, the digital store of value, well, DeFi is off trying to commoditize and revolutionize decentralized finance, you know, like the, the banking products, the lending, the borrowing and things. So yeah, I agree with you. If, if we could add, if we could add some privacy protections to that, the sky's the limit there. So exciting stuff, man. Yeah, I, I'm always thrilled to have the opportunity to talk about it. And you, you know a whole lot of stuff that I don't about a whole different side of the world. So maybe sometime we'll get you onto my podcast uh, to talk through some more of the legal angles around this stuff. I, I am very admittedly, as we disclosed up top, not a lawyer. Sure. Um, but I like talking to lawyers because they seem, they seem to know things that I don't a lot of the time. And thank goodness that they do. Yeah, man, I'd be happy to. So, uh, well, well, thanks for coming on tour. And I'll put some of these links you mentioned earlier in the show notes. So if users are interested in finding out more about Secret Network or connecting with you, um, they can do that there. Otherwise, um, go check out Tor on Twitter. He's a great follow. And thanks for coming on. My pleasure, man. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at BullyESQ to continue the conversation. 
See you next week. 